Chapter Fifteen, Part Two, of the Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter Fifteen. The History of Ships and Shipping Interests, Part Two. The Danes, once having a foothold, were never thoroughly expelled till the Norman conquest, and as a maritime race excelled all the nations of the north of Europe. They had two principal classes of vessels, the Drakers and Hulkers, the former named from carrying a dragon on the bows and bearing the Danish flag of the raven, the Hulker was at first a small boat, hollowed out of the trunk of a tree, but the word hulk, evidently derived from it, was used afterwards for vessels of larger dimensions. They had also another vessel called a snecker, serpent, strangely so named, for it was rather a short, stumpy kind of boat, not unlike the Dutch galleots of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. Their piratical expeditions soon increased, and Wales and the island of Anglesey were frequently pillaged by them, while in Ireland they possessed the ports of Dublin, Waterford, and Cork, a Danish king reigning in the first two cities. But a king was to arise who would change all this, Alfred the Great and Good, the father of the British Navy. On the accession of Alfred the Great to the throne, he found england so overrun by the danes that he had as every schoolboy knows to conceal himself with a few faithful followers in the forests in his retirement he busied himself in devising schemes for ridding his country of the pirate marauders and without much deliberation he saw that he must first have a maritime force of his own and meet the enemies of england on the sea which they considered their own especial element. He set himself busily to study the models of the Danish ships, and aided by his hardy followers, stirred up a spirit of maritime ambition which had not existed to any great extent before. At the end of the four years of unremitting labor and the prosecution of his schemes, he possessed the nucleus of a fleet in six galleys, which were double the length of any possessed by his adversaries, and which carried sixty oars, and possessed ample space for the fighting men on board. With this fleet he put to sea, taking the command in person, and routed a marauding expedition of the Danes then about to make a descent on the coast. The force was larger than his own, but he succeeded in capturing one and in driving off the rest. In the course of the next year or two, he captured or sunk eighteen of the enemy's galleys, and they found at last that they could not have it all their own way on the sea. About this time the cares of government occupied necessarily much of his time. His astute policy was to win over a number of the more friendly Danes to his cause, by giving them grants of land, and obliging them in return to assist in driving off aggressors. He was nearly the first native of England who made any efforts to extend the study of geography. 
according to the saxon chronicler florence of worcester a d eight ninety seven he consulted Oter, a learned norwegian and other authorities from whom he obtained much information respecting the northern seas Oter had not only coasted along the shores of norway but had rounded the north cape it was a feat in those days gentle reader but now cook's tourists do it and had reached the bay in which archangel is situated the ancient geographer gave alfred vivid descriptions of the gigantic whales and of the innumerable seals he had observed not forgetting the terrible maelstrom the dangers of which he did not underrate and which it was generally believed in those days was caused by a horribly vicious old sea-dragon who sucked the vessels under he compared the natives to the scythians of old and was rather severe on them as they brewed no ale the poor drinking honey mead in its stead and the rich a liquor distilled from goat's milk alfred not merely sent vessels to the north on voyages of discovery but opened communication with the mediterranean his galleys penetrating to the extreme east of the levant whereby he was enabled to carry on a direct trade with india william of malmesbury mentions the silks shawls incense spices and aromatic gums which alfred received from the malabar coast in return for presents sent to the nestorian christians alfred constantly and steadily encouraged the science of navigation and certainly earned the right of the proud title he has borne since of father of the british navy time passes and we come to canute on his accession to the throne as the son of a danish conqueror he practically put an end to the incursions and attacks of the northern pirates the influence of his name was so great that he found it unnecessary to maintain more than forty ships at sea and the number was subsequently reduced so far from entertaining any fear of revolt from the english or of any raid on his shores he made frequent voyages to the continent as well as to the north he once proceeded as far as rome where he met the emperor conrad the second from whom he obtained for all his subjects whether merchants or pilgrims complete exemption from the heavy tolls usually exacted on their former visits to that city canute was a cosmopolitan by his conquest of norway not merely did he represent the english whom he had subjugated and who had become attached to him but the danes their constant and inveterate foes and rivals he thus united under one sovereignty the principal maritime nations of the north and still the writer exerts the privileges conceded to all who wield the pen of passing quickly over the pages of history the stories says a writer who made maritime subjects a peculiar study as to the number of vessels under the order of the conqueror on his memorable expedition are very conflicting some writers have asserted that the total number amounted to no less than three thousand of which six or seven hundred were of a superior order the remainder consisting of boats temporarily built and of the most fragile description others place the whole fleet at not more than eight hundred vessels of all sizes and this number is more likely to be nearest the truth 
there are now no means of ascertaining their size but their form may be conjectured from the representation of these vessels on the rolls of the famous bayou tapestry it is said that when william meditated his descent on england he ordered large ships to be constructed for that purpose at his seaports collecting whenever these could be found smaller vessels or boats to accompany them but even the largest must have been of little value as the whole fleet were by his orders burned and destroyed as soon as he landed with his army so as to cut off all retreat and to save the expense of their maintenance this would indicate that the sailors had to fight ashore and may possibly have been intended to spur on his army to victory freeman states in his history of the norman conquest that he finds the largest number of ships in the conqueror's expedition as compiled from the most reliable authorities was three thousand but some accounts put it as low as six hundred and ninety three most of the ships were presents from the prelates or great barons william fitz osborne gave sixty the count de mortain one hundred and twenty the bishop of bayou one hundred and the finest of all that in which william himself embarked was presented to him by his own duchess matilda and named mora norman writers of the time state that the vessels were not much to boast of as they were all collected between the beginning of january and the end of august ten sixty six lindsay who thoroughly investigated the subject says that the norman merchant vessels or transports were in length about three times their breadth and were sometimes propelled by oars but generally by sails their galleys appear to have been of two sorts the larger occasionally called galleons carrying in some instances sixty men well armed with iron armor beside their oars the smaller galleys which are not specially described doubtless resembled ships launches in size but of a form enabling them to be propelled at a considerable rate of speed boats covered with leather were even employed on the perilous channel voyage the conqueror soon added to the security of the country by the establishment of the sink ports which as their title denotes were at first five but were afterwards increased in number so as to include the following seaports dover sandwich hythe and romsey in kent and rye winchelsea hastings and seaford in sussex on their first establishment they were to provide fifty-two ships with twenty-four men on each for fifteen days each year in case of emergency in return they had many privileges a part of which are enjoyed by them to-day their freemen were styled barons each of the ports returned two members of parliament an officer was appointed over them who was lord warden of the sink ports and also constable of dover castle for more than a hundred years after the conquest says the writer just quoted england's ships had rarely ventured beyond the bay of biscay on the one hand and the entrance to the baltic on the other and there is no special record of long voyages by english ships until the time of the crusades which whatever they might have done for the cause of the cross undoubtedly gave the first impetus to the shipping of the country 
the number of rich and powerful princes and nobles who embarked their fortunes in these extraordinary expeditions offered the chance of lucrative employment to any nation which could supply the requisite amount of tonnage and english shipowners very naturally made great exertions to reap a share of the gains one of the first english noblemen who fitted out an expedition to the holy land was the earl of essex and twelve years afterwards richard cure de lion on ascending the throne made vast levies on the people for the same object joining philip the second and other princes for the purpose of raising the cross above the crescent towards the close of eleven eighty nine two fleets had been collected one at dover to convey richard and his followers among whom were the archbishop of canterbury the bishop of salisbury and the lord chief justice of england across the channel and a second and still larger fleet at dartmouth composed of numbers of vessels from aquitaine brittany normandy and puetu for the conveyance of the great bulk of the crusaders to join richard at marseilles whither he had gone overland with the french king and his other allies the dartmouth fleet under the command of richard de camville and robert de sabloy set sail about the end of april eleven ninety it had a disastrous voyage but at length reached lisbon where the crusaders behaved so badly and committed so many outrages that seven hundred were locked up after some delay they sailed up the mediterranean reaching marseilles where they had to stop some time to repair their unseaworthy ships and then followed the king to the straits of messina where the fleets combined it was not until seven months later that the fleet got under way for the holy land it numbered one hundred ships of larger kind and fourteen smaller vessels called buses each of the former carried beside her crew of fifteen sailors forty soldiers forty horses and provisions for a twelvemonth vinisauf who makes the fleet much larger mentions that it proceeded in the following order three large ships formed the van the second line consisted of thirteen vessels the lines expanding to the seventh which consisted of sixty vessels and immediately preceded the king and his ships on their way they fell in with a very large ship belonging to the saracens manned by fifteen hundred men and after a desperate engagement took her richard ordered that all but two hundred of those not killed in the action should be thrown overboard and thus thirteen hundred infidels were sacrificed at one blow off etna sicily they experienced a terrific gale and the crew got seasick and frightened and off the island of cyprus they were assailed by another storm in which three ships were lost and the vice-chancellor of england was drowned his body being washed ashore with the great seal of england hanging around his neck richard did not return to england till after the capture of acre and the truce with saladin he landed at sandwich as nearly as may be four years from the date of his start and this is neither a history of england nor of the crusades excepting only as either are connected with the sea we must pass on to a subject of some importance which was the direct result of experience gained at this period the foundation of a maritime code by an ordinance of richard cure de lion 
a most important step in the history of merchant shipping, was due to the knowledge acquired by English pilgrims, traders, and seamen at the time of the Crusades. The first code was founded on a similar set of rules then existing in France, known as the Rôle de Oloron, and some of the articles show how loose had been the conditions of the sailor's life previously. The first article gave a master power to pledge the tackle of a ship, if in want of provisions for the crew, but forbade the sale of the hull without the owner's permission. The captain's position as Lord Paramount on board was defined. No one, not even part owners or supercargoes, must interfere. He was expected to understand thoroughly the art of navigation. The second article declared that if a vessel was held in port, through failure of wind or stress of weather, the ship's company should be guided as to the best course to adopt by the opinion of the majority. Two succeeding articles related to wrecks and salvage. The fifth article provided that no sailor in port should leave the vessel without the master's consent. If he did so, and any harm resulted to the ship or cargo, he should be punished with a year's imprisonment on bread and water. He might also be flogged. If he deserted altogether and was retaken, he might be branded on the face with a red-hot iron. Although allowance was made for such as ran away from their ships through ill usage, sailors could also be compensated for unjust discharge without cause, Succeeding clauses refer to the moral conduct of the sailor, forbidding drunkenness, fighting, etc. Article 12 provided that if any mariner should give the lie to another at a table where there was wine and bread, he should be fined for denier. And the master himself, offending in the same way, should be liable to a double fine. If any sailor should impudently contradict the mate, he might be fined eight deniers. And if the master struck him with his fist or open hand, he was required to bear the stroke. But if struck more than once, he was entitled to defend himself. If the sailor committed the first assault, he was to be fined one hundred sous, or else his hand was to be chopped off. The master was required by another rule, not to give his crew cause for mutiny, nor call them names, nor wrong them, nor keep anything from them that is theirs, but to use them well and pay them honestly what is their due. Another clause provided that the sailor might always have the option of going on shares or wages, and the master was to put the matter fairly before them. The seventeenth clause related to food. The hardy sailors of Brittany were to have only one meal a day from the kitchen, while the lucky ones of Normandy were to have two. When the ship arrived at a wine country, the master was bound to provide the crew with wine. Sailors were elsewhere forbidden to take royal fish, such as the sturgeon, salmon, turbo, and sea barbell, or to take on their own account fish which yield oil. These are a part only of the clauses, many others referring to matters connected with rigging, masts, anchorages, pilotage, and other technical points. 
in bad pilotage the navigator who brought mishap on the ship was liable to lose his head the general tenor of the first code is excellent and the rules were laid down with an evident spirit of fairness alike to the owner and sailor the subject of letters of mark might occupy an entire volume and will recur again in these pages they were in reality nothing more than privileges granted for purposes of retaliation legalized piracy they were first issued by edward i and the very first related to an outrage committed by portuguese on an english subject a merchant of bayonne at the time a port belonging to england in gascony had shipped a cargo of fruit from malaga which on its voyage along the coast of portugal was seized and carried into lisbon by an armed cruiser belonging to that country then at peace with england the king of portugal who had received one-tenth part of the cargo declined to restore the ship or lading whereupon the owner and his heirs received a license to remain in force five years to seize the property of the portuguese and especially that of the inhabitants of lisbon to the extent of the loss sustained the expenses of recovery being allowed how far the merchant of bayonne recouped himself history saith not a little later a most important mercantile trade came into existence that in coal from archaeological remains and discoveries it is certain that the romans excavated coal during their reign on this island but it was not till the reign of edward the third that the first opening of the great newcastle coal fields took place although as early as twelve fifty three there was a lane at the back of newgate called sea coal lane as in many other instances even in our own days the value of the discovery seems to have been more appreciated by foreigners than by the people of this country and for a considerable time after it had been found the combustion of coal was considered to be so unhealthy that a royal edict forbade its use in the city of london while the queen resided there in case it might prove pernicious to her health at the same time while england laid her veto on the use of that very article which has since made her or helped to make her the most famous commercial nation of the world france sent her ships laden with corn to newcastle carrying back coal in return her merchants being the first to supply this new great article of commerce to foreign countries in the reign of henry v the trade had become of such importance that a special act was passed providing for the admeasurement of ships and barges employed in the coal trade king john stoutly claimed for england the sovereignty of the sea he was not always so firm and decided and decreed that all foreign ships the masters of which should refuse to strike their colors to the british flag should be seized and deemed good and lawful prizes this monarch is stated to have fitted out no less than five hundred ships under the earl of salisbury in the year twelve thirteen against a fleet of ships three times that number organized by philip of france 
for the invasion of England. After a stubborn battle, the English were successful, taking 300 sail and driving more than 100 ashore, Philip being under the necessity of destroying the remainder to prevent them falling into the hands of the enemies. Some notion may be gained of the kinds of ships of which these fleets were composed by the account that is narrated of an action fought in the following reign with the French, who, with eighty stout ships, threatened the coast of Kent. This fleet being discovered by Hubert de Burg, governor of Dover Castle, he put to sea with half the number of English vessels, and having got to the windward of the enemy, and run down many of the smaller ships, he closed with the rest, and threw on board them a quantity of quicklime, a novel expedient in warfare, which so blinded the crews that their vessels were either captured or sunk. The dominion of the sea was bravely maintained by our Edwards and Henrys in many glorious sea fights. The temper of the times is strongly exemplified by the following circumstance. In the reign of Edward I, an English sailor was killed in a Norman port, in consequence of which war was declared by England against France, and the two nations agreed to decide the dispute on a certain day with the whole of their respective naval forces. The spot of battle was to be the middle of the channel, marked out by anchoring there an empty ship. This strange duel of nations actually took place, for the two fleets met on April 14, 1293, when the English obtained the victory and carried off in triumph 250 vessels from the enemy. In an action off the harbor of Sloys with the French fleet, Edward III is said to have slain 30,000 of the enemy, and to have taken 200 large ships, in one of which only there were 400 dead bodies. The same monarch, at the siege of Calais, is stated to have blockaded that port with 730 sail, having on board 14,956 mariners. The size of the vessels employed must have been rapidly enlarging. Chaucer gives us a graphic description of the British sailor of the 14th century, in his prologue to the Canterbury Tales. It runs as follows. A shipman was there, wanting for by west, for aught I wot he was of Dartemouth. He rode upon a rouncy as he couth, in a gown of folding to the knee, a dagger hanging on a lass had he, about his neck under his arm adorned, the hoot summer had made his hoon all brown, and certainly he was a good fellow. Full many a draught of wind had he draw. From Bordeaux ward, while that the chapman sleep, of nice conscience took he no keep. If that he fought and had the higher hand, by water he sent him home to every land. But of his craft to rhine well the tides his streams and his dangers him besides, his herberg and his main, his load, menage. There was none such from Hull to Carthage. Hardly he was and wise to undertake, with many a tempest had his bird been shake. He knew well all the havens as they were, from Scotland to the Cape of Finister, and every creek 
in Britain and in Spain. His barge he clept was the Magdalene. In the reign of Henry V, the most glorious period up to that time of the British Navy, the French lost nearly all their navy to us at various times. Among other victories, Henry Page, admiral of the Cinque Ports, captured a hundred and twenty merchantmen, forming the Rochelle fleet, and all richly laden. Towards the close of this reign, about the year 1416, England formally claimed the dominion of the sea, and a parliamentary document recorded this fact. It was never absolute, says Sir Walter Raleigh, until the time of Henry the Eighth. That great voyager and statesman adds that whoever commands the sea commands the trade of the world, whosoever commands the trade commands the riches of the world, and consequently the world itself. A curious poem is included in the first volume of Hockliut's famous collection of voyages bearing reference to the navy of Henry. It is entitled The English Policy, Exhorting All England to Keep the Sea, etc. It was written apparently about the year 1435. It is a long poem, and the following is an extract merely. And if I should conclude all by the king, Henry V, what was his purposing? When at Hampton he made the great Dromans, which passed other great ships of the commons, the Trinity, the Grace to do, the Holy Ghost, and other mo which is now be lost. What hope you was the king's great intent of those ships, and what in mind be meant? It is not Ellis, but that he cast to be, Lord round about environ of the sea. And if he had to this time lived here, he had been prince named withouten peer. His great ships should have been put in priefs, unto the end that he meant of in chiefs, for doubt it not but that he would have be, lord and master about the Rand Sea, and kept it sure to stop our enemies hence, and won us good, and wisely brought it thence, that our passage should be without danger, and his license on sea to move and steer. End of chapter 15, part 2